Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The Gospel of John presents many challenges for interpreters. How best should this book be read? How are we to understand issues like its unity or its critical stance to the characters known as the Jews? Christopher M. Blumhofer suggests the Gospel of John ought to be read as a narrative argument about how Israel might embrace its future. Tune in as we speak with Chris Blumhofer about his recent book, The Gospel of John and the Future of Israel. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Christopher M. Blumhofer is visiting assistant professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary. In addition to his monograph on the Gospel of John, he has published with New Testament Studies, Review of Biblical Literature, and has a forthcoming contribution co-authored with Richard B. Hayes on the canonical matrix of the Gospels. At Fuller Seminary, he teaches introductory, interpretive, and exegesis courses in New Testament. Chris, welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. Thank you. Great to be here. Chris, your book on the Gospel of John began as a doctoral dissertation. Tell us about this journey. Yeah, sure. So in many ways, this was the only dissertation that I could have written. And it has both a kind of academic um, run-up and also a personal run-up. Uh, I was in my third year of my PhD program at Duke when uh, I got through my comprehensive exams and I kind of barely survived my comprehensive exams. The three years of classwork and exams prep was all consuming. And I came out of those with a really solid uh, understanding of the New Testament and some good skills, but also uh, I had just worked so hard to get there that I felt like I didn't have any good questions left in me. And so I took the second half of my third year in my PhD program to sit in on a seminar uh, that was going on at Duke with Joel Marcus, and it was on Judaism in the New Testament. And it was a survey of uh, a variety of books and the question of how ancient Judaism plays into those texts, uh, whether it helps us un- understand them or the ethical issues that those texts raise around Judaism or whatever it may be. And uh, I just sat in as an observer, but in the first week of the class, uh, Joel asked if I wanted to take a presentation and I volunteered for the one on John. And as I found myself working on it and prepping the material, I, I began to experience a sense of, um, ability and curiosity about the Gospel of John that had been absent through the hard work of the previous year or so. And um, specifically what I would try to engage there was a question of this, the presentation of these characters called the Jews in John. And as I worked through the material, I began to recognize that there was something about those characters, the Jews, that simply wasn't being recognized in the, the academic conversation. And by that, I mean, most studies define the term the Jews uh, in ways that 
treat the narrative of John selectively. So they might define the term based on geography and describe the Jews as the Judeans. Or they might describe it sociologically based on some subset of the Jewish population in the ancient world. Or they might define it based on a historical reconstruction where the Jews are the early rabbis that ejected the early Christians from the synagogue. Um, all of these interpretations stumble in different points in the gospel, and they particularly all stumble at John 4, 9, where the Samaritan woman looks at Jesus and says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? So the troubling thing about John is that John draws these stark lines between Jesus and the Jews, but also places Jesus as clearly recognizable within that group. Uh, and what I developed in working with that problem was this aware, I had this dawning awareness that if we considered the Jews narratively as a character uh, that developed from the beginning of the narrative as a curious group about Jesus to one that is hostile and then argumentative about Jesus in the kind of central chapters of the gospel, and then a group that really outright rejects Jesus. Um, then we can get a handle on how John is working through something that um, we've all, we as scholars have recognized that problem, but I think John also recognizes that problem and actually works through it in the characterization of these characters. In that presentation, I recognize that there's this decisive moment in John 11 and 12 when some members of the Jews, the Eudioi, they actually depart from that group and they believe in Jesus. So they leave one affiliation, they leave the Jews, and they belong to another group. And the, the, the group that surrounds Jesus isn't actually named, they're not called the Christians, but they depart from the Eudioi and they believe in Jesus. So leaving one affiliation and taking on a second one. So I presented this development and how the narrative works through this problem and can kind of gives us clues to thinking about who are these characters and how does John think about them. And the more I tried to understand the issues at stake here, the more the project grew. And so after that seminar, that semester, I realized that I had the beginnings of a dissertation and certainly a dissertation proposal. Uh, and I began to put together the kind of historical problem of the Jews and John, the theological and ethical issues with the Jews and John, and that narrative piece of reading the gospel and how the gospel itself might lead us to think about these issues. And along the way, I started to ask these bigger questions about John, which is, how do you end up with a gospel like John? If you're wrestling with the history of the gospel, the theology of the gospel, the narrative shape of the gospel, um, eventually those kind of opened out on this bigger question of, what sorts of conditions, what sorts of beliefs make it possible to tell this kind of a story? Uh, John's a distinctive gospel, even sometimes a strange gospel. So why tell the story this way? And as I worked on that, I realized that uh, the identity of Jesus as the specific hope of Israel is a theme that unites the entire gospel narrative. And this fits the historical context of the gospel. It also helps us navigate the gospel's theology, and and it, and it helps unite and tie together the narrative of the of the text as well. Uh, I realized then, as I got deeper into the work, that Rudolf Bultmann saw that a hundred years ago in 1925. Um, that he said that the main issues in interpreting John are about its context historically. What is the context that will generate a book like this, and what's the idea that's at the theological center of it? 
And so I eventually realized that I was I had stepped into one of the kind of central problems of interpreting the Gospel of John. And the book, the dissertation was written as an attempt to answer that cent- answer those central issues um, and argue this thesis that really seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel in a specific way is what brings together the Gospel of John both theologically and historically. In your introduction, you make a provocative statement that explains the title of your book. You write, The Gospel of John ought to be read as a narrative argument about how Israel might embrace its future. Would you flesh this out for us, how it helps us understand the Gospel's theological message and how it makes sense of its historical setting? Yeah. Well, all uh, I see John and most of early Christianity as a kind of subset of ancient Judaism. And that's the the world into which belief in Jesus began was the Jewish world. And ancient Judaism was a living tradition, and Judaism is still a living tradition, and a, a, a tradition that extends through time for thousands of years. And like all traditions, uh, ancient Judaism was sustained by an ongoing conversation about the things that define the identity of God's people. And um, conversation can be a polite word. It's also defined by its arguments, by who's in and who's out, where do we draw the lines, um, how do we understand ourselves in light of what's going on around us. And so I see, first, I mean, the basis of seeing John as a narrative argument is seeing that it belongs within a whole set of discourses and arguments and conversations that were going on within ancient Judaism. And that's what defines a tradition. So specifically to have an argument, to have a strong position and present it over and against someone who you disagree with does not mean that you're not in the same tradition. It simply means that you both care about the same things enough to argue about them. Um, Sometimes we read uh, ancient texts especially ancient Jewish texts, as if they're all potential sources for the New Testament. And we look at for where maybe John or Paul or Matthew have gotten an idea from their Jewish context. But another way of conceiving this ancient, this set of ancient texts that constitute our knowledge of ancient Judaism is as this conversation. And we kind of step into it and we overhear what different groups are saying at different times to each other, how they are agreeing, disagreeing, missing each other, and so on. So I think if we listen carefully to, to the context of, of the liter- in the literature of ancient Judaism, we can identify those conversations and the contributions of different groups. Uh, and as I started doing that, uh, coming back to the Gospel of John after my exams and having a lot of this Jewish conversation kind of fresh in my mind, I began to appreciate how much the eschatological hopes of Israel were a focus of the conversation in first century Judaism. Uh, We can sometimes take that for granted uh, as New Testament scholars or as people who read the New Testament because it's so steeped that way. But that's a distinctive element of Judaism in this Second Temple period. There's a real concern with eschatological hopes and how will God uh, move the people from their current state into the state that he's promised them and create this continuity between the people God created Israel to be, which we read about in most of the Old Testament, and the people that he promises them they one day will be, which is what the prophets uh, of in the Old Testament also uh, foresee. And 
I came to see that the Gospel of John is interested in showing how Jesus is that bridge from the storied past of the people of Israel into that bright future that God has promised them. And, and the Gospel of John is saying how Jesus is the way to be living in continuity with this past and into this future that God has told us to look forward to. One of the specific ways this plays out in the literature is that um, a number of Jewish texts write with a kind of self-conscious awareness when they talk about Israel. They are describing this restored or idealized entity that God both created in the biblical past and is committed to restoring and recreating in the future. And uh, you can track this in the literature around the Gospel of John, but one of the interesting things is you can also track it in the Gospel of John. And so even though John has uh, nearly 70 uses of the word the Jews, and most of them are either neutral or kind of negative uses of that term, the term Israel and Israelite, every time it's used in the Gospel of John, is a positive term. And with that little foothold of how the terms themselves are used in the Gospel of John, it helped me set John within this larger discourse where the people of, of this Jewish tradition in the ancient world were envisioning how God would fulfill his promises to his people. And when he would do that, it was by recreating Israel. So that's why the book's called The Gospel of John and the Future of Israel, because it, it it's, it's a way of saying that John... All of, its, all of its long story about Jesus is a way of describing how God will get his people from where they are to where he's promised to take them, and Jesus is the vehicle for getting there. So it's a narrative, it's a story that tells that, but it's also an argument. It's an argument that this is how God will fulfill his promises, and implicit is that God is not going to fulfill his promises through a different community, through a different construal of the story. This is how God is doing it. Um, so that's what a narrative argument it, uh, means in this case. It puts it in that tradition and situates John as a distinctive voice, distinctive argument in this conversation about how God will uh, fulfill his promises. You use the term eudaioi instead of Jews throughout your book. Why? Uh, I do for two reasons. Uh, the first is that I had on my dissertation committee, Daniel Boyarin, who insisted that I do it. And um, Boyarin uh, was, was a very important thought partner with me, and then he honored me by joining the dissertation committee at 1.2. Um, what he has helped identify in the academic world, and this has been, a, he has spurred me on to this too, is to recognize that when we use the word Jew, we don't mean the same thing that a first century uh, member of the Jewish community meant when they used the word Jew. So the word Udayoi is a way of making the this term that is very familiar a little bit strange. And that strangeness is a real help in biblical studies. Um, and if you've ever uh, s sat on under a sermon on the Gospel of John, or been in any kind of context where someone has to present the Gospel of John to a lay audience, you'll have heard that there is some translation work that has to happen with who does John mean when he says the Jews? And so Udayoi is one way of reminding us as we work through the Gospel that this is a distinctive group, and it is not 
the same or it's not necessarily identical to the group that we meet today. Um, so one of the things that I try to do in the book is I try to provide a survey and history of the word the Jew, starting in the Bible itself. Um, so we meet the word Jews or the Udayoi um, first in uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Jeremiah in the Old Testament. And this moves forward through a particular community, identify themselves as Jews um, in Second Temple literature. While a particular community claims the term Udayoi to identify themselves, the term Israel in this ancient literature actually encompasses a, a larger range of people. So to take an example, the Qumran community uh, from which we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they they never refer to themselves as Udayoi or as Jews. They refer to themselves as Israel many times and as the community of God's people or other designations they have, but they never call themselves Udayoi. Um, we today call them Udayoi. We see them as first century Jews or second temple Jews, but they would not have taken that term because the term Udayoi designated something that they did not uh, see as identifying themselves. Um, additionally, another example is the Samaritans. So in, we have evidence of Samaritans in the ancient world claiming that they belong to the people of Israel. Uh, but of course, they would not uh, have taken on the title Udayoi or Jews for themselves. Um, so if we begin to appreciate that historically, the Udayoi are a subset of the people of Israel uh, within a larger community. Then, then I think we have a good angle for reading how the Gospel of John can both belong to this broader Jewish tradition, but yet not uh, want to identify Jesus or his followers as Udayoi, as members of this particular group within it. Um, I'm very happy to admit or surrender the possibility that many of the people who were living around John may have seen themselves as Udayoi or seen them there to have been no problem with that group, but I don't think it is, or I should say, there's this tendency to think that you can just draw an equal sign between the word Jew and Israel in the ancient world. And actually that's not the case historically or sociologically. Um, that's a theological argument to say that to be a Udayoi is to be a member of the people of Israel. Uh, and John doesn't want to grant that claim. Uh, he wants to say that to be a believer in Jesus is to be a member of the people of Israel. Uh, and so we're working within distinctions within ancient Judaism. And the term Udayoi helps us get there and helps us have a word that's that's strange again. And that strangeness, I think, is a, is a, is a real asset at this point in Johannian studies. In your book, you work through many sections of the entire gospel to demonstrate your thesis that Israel's worship of God and obedience to him find their fulfillment through Jesus Christ. Let's look at a few examples. Tell us about your reading of John 2, 13 through 22, which you label Jesus and the dwelling place of God. Yeah, thanks. So this is the well-known scene that often goes by the title, The Cleansing of the Temple. And there's a lot packed in to, there's a lot of interpretation packed into the phrase, the cleansing of the temple. It presupposes that the temple is dirty and needs to be air polluted in some way and needs to be kind of ritually purified. Um, and 
as I was preparing and getting into this study, you know, one of the things that struck me is that if I'm trying to read John on its own terms and not carry over the um, kind of standard or stock interpretations that we get um, from, especially from the synoptic gospels, that I would have to challenge myself to think in new terms. And so part of coming up with this new designation for that story, Jesus and the dwelling place of God, is trying to use John's own language for what's happening there and not import an interpretation from the synoptic gospels. So we ask, if we ask the question as we read this story, uh, Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem at Passover, and he finds um, these merchants selling uh, oxen, sheep, pigeons, and so on, and they're money changers. Jesus makes this whip and drives them out of the temple. Um, it's not exactly clear why Jesus does this. And the answer that lies at hand, if you're reading the Synoptic Gospels, is that the temple uh, was somehow corrupt and that the money changers were greedy, that they were there was some kind of interest or inflation uh, going on there that was taking advantage of the worshipers, or there's some way in which we essentially uh, try to undermine or tar the the, the money changers and the, the sellers of these animals to say they were really bad, and that's why Jesus went in there and he drives these out. Of course, none of that's actually in the text. That's all inference. And there's nothing inherently corrupt about money changing, about changing one currency into another. Uh, and there's nothing inherently corrupt about selling animals for worship or using animals in worship. Um, these are simply the mechanisms that enable the temple to function in ancient Judaism. So uh, I didn't want to import the negative readings, especially from the Synoptic Gospels, or really from an implicit kind of anti-ritual, anti-Jewish uh, understanding of the temple in Christianity. Um, so if John doesn't signal this, we want to ask, why does John do this? And uh, I take John's language really seriously, that he is driving out the money changers to reclaim the father's house so that it won't be any longer a house of trade. and. Um, in in the Old Testament, in Zechariah 14, one of the climactic images of what happens when God restores his people is that there are no more traders, no more um, merchants in the house of the Lord. So the first thing that I see and argue is happening here is that Jesus is not attacking the temple for being impure. He's, it, he's basically enacting the prophecy of Zechariah 14. And this is a kind of prophetic sign act that Jesus brings about this day when God himself dwells among his people. Uh, and this shouldn't be a surprise to us if we've been reading the Gospel of John even for two chapters. We know that John believes that that's exactly what's happened with Jesus, is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or that uh, the, the, the angels of heaven ascend and descend upon the Son of Man. He is the mediating point between heaven and earth. And so if he's standing in the temple, then it's totally appropriate to have the temple reflect what it's supposed to look like on the day when God is finally uh, fully present to his people again. So I argue that that's what's happening based on the simple logic of John, that Jesus really is um, 
the, the word become flesh, and now he's standing in the temple. And so when the, the, the characters, the Jews, ask Jesus uh, for a sign to authorize what he's doing, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they balk at this because it took so long to build the temple. But John then tells us in 221, he was speaking about the temple, the naos of his body. And the challenge is here is that if we're, we have to be willing to see Jesus is really, truly the dwelling place of God. But if we see Jesus in the first part of trying to reclaim the Father's house for its, uh, to be a sign of what it's supposed to be on the last day, then Jesus pointing to himself as the dwelling place of God is this kind of climactic moment of saying the temple can be free of merchants now, and that's what it should be, because the day that you've been looking forward to has arrived in me. And that's why he talks about the temple of his body. His body is already the dwelling place of God, but it will uh, continue and kind of ultimately realize that throughout the course of his ministry um, and in his death and resurrection. So that's why he can point to himself as the dwelling place of God here. In this way, the the, the scene of Jesus clearing the temple uh, is not is less an attack on the temple and it's more of allowing the temple in its moment of, of eschatological glory to bear witness to how God is, is fulfilling his promises. And that's what I see happening here in John 2, um, that the, the temple is a witness to Jesus, essentially. And it's, in, it's embodying, Jesus makes it embody what it's supposed to look like on the last day so that um, we can recognize that when Jesus comes into the temple, it is that fulfilled that, that fulfilled moment of Zechariah 14. That if we are reading the Old Testament, we've been trained to look forward to. How does John 6 and Jesus' feeding of the multitudes fit in with the gospel's message? Yeah, well, that's a great question. John 6 is really an immensely complicated and long chapter. It's 71 verses. Um, and... So it's, it can be a very intimidating chapter to interpret. Um, this is the passage in John where Jesus, he begins by feeding the 5,000. Again, uh, the setting is Passover. Uh, and he feeds this crowd. Then Jesus walks on water. And then the crowds follow. Uh, there's a sea crossing. He walks on water. Then the crowds follow him. And Jesus delivers this long discourse on the bread of life. Uh, and in that discourse, Jesus is at pains to present himself as the bread of heaven. Jesus is a kind of food that can give people eternal life. And so the challenge that I uh, recognized, and I think this is I think that this is really the challenge for any interpretation of John six, is to try to hold the whole thing together. it's It's not too difficult to interpret the feeding the five thousand or the walking on water or the bread of life discourse. On own. The question is, why do these three stories appear alongside of each other? How do they build towards something? And what's the purpose of that? So what I argue here is if we see all this whole chapter as one long scene that's meant to illumine something about Jesus in terms of the future, how he brings about the future of Israel, um, I think this actually does make the chapter hold together because it helps us recognize why the feeding of the 5,000 is a kind of teaching tool for the discourse on the bread of life. 
So the, te- the feeding of the 5,000 is not a miracle that is self-interpreting or that, ex- that explains itself as if Jesus has this miraculous power to create, to create bread. It's actually that in John 6, the feeding of the 5,000 is the launching pad for an understanding of Jesus. Like, so again, the, the miracle Jesus himself. He is this kind of miraculous food. When we kind of hold it all together, then I think we see and it, we can begin to see how John has this desire to pre- present Jesus as this kind of food that will sustain Israel, that will bring them into their life, and that this fits into an ancient Jewish discourse about how God will sustain Israel, uh, not with perishable food, but with food that nurtures this kind of eternal life. So this is not the first or only Jewish text that envisions God sustaining people with a food that gives gives and grants them life. Now, what is very common in uh, other Jewish texts is to attribute that life-sustaining food to the Torah or to wisdom, and often those are the same things. Uh, what John is doing that is novel is attributing that life-sustaining food to belief in Jesus. So when Jesus then hosts this meal, it's the feeding of the 5,000, it's kind of like a Passover feast just outside the land of Israel. He then shifts into a discourse about himself, and he says, it's not about the food you ate yesterday. The issue is not what you will eat physically, but will you believe in the bread of life that God has sent into the world? That's what Jesus says in verse 29. And as we go on through this, we see that there's a, there are a lot of Old Testament texts that are lying in the background here. Um, one of them is Psalm 77 that rehearses God bringing, giving food to his people outside of the land of Israel um, at, at the time of the Exodus. And the other is this eschatological vision of Isaiah 55, where Isaiah calls the people of Israel to come uh, buy food without price to seek the word of God that descends from heaven. And you know, all those phrases about seeking, uh, that's, a, that's a, a key verb that's used in John 6, the crowds seek Jesus. Um, the initial question at the feeding of the 5,000 is where will we buy bread? It's so, how, we don't have enough money for this, so where can we get food without price? And of course, the word of God descending from heaven uh, is an image that any reader of John should be alert to. Even though John is he uses a different Greek word, or Isaiah uses a different Greek word than John prefers for the word, um, but that word, that idea of the word descending, is uh, creates a kind of uh, loud illusion between these texts. So what I'm what I try to argue here is that John has created this scene in order to present Jesus as the kind of food that will sustain Israel in contrast to God bringing Israel into its eschatological life through the way that the other aspects of the Jewish tradition would make that argument, which is through the Torah. Instead, it's Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. Uh, and so that's why Jesus then shifts the discourse over, uh, over the course of the chapter from eating physically to eating the bread of life, which here means believing in Jesus. And as the chapter moves forward and it becomes clearer that Jesus is the one we are called to believe in, and not just Jesus in the abstract, but Jesus as this Galilean man whose father and mother we know. That's what causes the first group of people to stumble 
Um, this particular man being God's fulfillment of his eschatological promises, him being the way to life, is the breaking point for the first group of people. And when we get to verse 66, and Jesus has really crystallized the image around his body, his flesh and his blood, you have to believe in the very physical, tangible reality that God is going to save Israel through this particular Jewish man. Uh, That's when the disciples start falling away. So it's the concreteness of believing that God is going to give eternal life through faith in this one man that creates a huge division or several divisions in Israel in this chapter. Um, so I argue that, that that unites it, that unites both the text that we have in the gospel and sets it within this other set series of discourses within ancient Judaism that are thinking about life-sustaining food, how the manna in the wilderness might prefigure God's food on the last days, how food will descend from heaven that will nourish us eternally. John's working with these things that other ancient Jews of his time were also working with. And then the other claim here that I'm trying to make, Michael, is that you know, John 6 is not primarily a Eucharistic text, which is the uh, kind of the other major option on offer for interpreters of the Gospel of John, that since John doesn't have an institution of the Lord's Supper uh, in the Passion narrative, we would be tempted to think that John is instituting the Lord's Supper, essentially, in chapter 6 and providing an interpretation of the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. And... Uh, my argument here is that John is consistently focused on belief in the the very tangible physical person of Jesus as the object of our faith and the one whom, by whom or through whom God might rescue the world. And so Eucharist or Lord's Supper, these kind of rituals of, of the church are secondarily related to this text, um, but it's not the main focus of the text. The focus of the text is much more rooted in this Jewish discourse about how God will sustain his people with heavenly food into eternal life. The last section of the Gospel, John chapters 11 through 20, you label crisis. Can you give us a summary of your aim here? I label that section of the Gospel crisis because even it's about half the Gospel, um, but there are a couple things that really change in the last portion of the gospel. Um, first, we see Jesus extent, have an extended discourse with his disciples. And so the character of the Jews who have helped push the narrative forward for the first half of the gospel, they really drop out of the picture. And so I think one of the things that we as interpreters of John have to ask is, what has happened that John would change the focus of the story? There's not conflict with the Jews all the way to the end in the Gospel of John. Um, the conflict seems to uh, reach a climax in chapter 12, and then uh, John steps away from it for this long discourse before going into the passion narrative here. In Greek, the word crisis can mean both a judgment, a decision about something, and a division. Uh, and I grab that term, which I I credit to Boltman because he sees the term working in both those ways too. And John, I I grab that term to show us what I think is happening in the narrative in the Gospel of John too. By the time you get to John chapter twelve, those who um, everyone's kind of made up their mind about Jesus, and so there's no more character development that's going to happen for the disciples or for 
um, the Udayoi. They've picked their sides. Uh, so the division has taken place by that point in the narrative. And what John is going to do then is show what kind of judgment that makes about our lives. And this explains the characterization of both uh, the Udayoi, Jesus' opponents, and Jesus' disciples here too. So as John moves forward in this section of the gospel, he presents Jesus uh, as this kind of Davidic righteous sufferer. And he presents the disciples as the people who are friends of that sufferer. They are they share in his faithfulness and they have a part in the future of Israel through him. So they're loyal to him. That's the judgment about them. But the judgment about Jesus' opponents, the Udayoi, is much harsher. And it reaches a kind of a, a real low point uh, in the rejection of Jesus at the crucifixion when the, the Udayoi, they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. Um, and this really captures for John the apostasy of the Udayoi in his gospel. As he sees it, um, they reject they reject Jesus, but in rejecting Jesus, of course, according to John, they're rejecting the word of God itself. Um, and it, it echoes back to this moment in 1 Samuel 8 when the people reject God as their king, and they want to have a king like all the other nations. So that phrase, we have no king but Caesar, um, is is a real tragic expression of what John thinks is uh, the, the Jews, the Udayoi, have stepped into out of out of and due to their rejection of Jesus. Um, you know, the, one of the longstanding ways of characterizing Jesus in Jewish literature is as a deceiver of Israel, as an imposter, someone who would mislead the people. And I see the I see John as recognizing that. And, um, of course, John disagrees wholeheartedly, um, and he, but he sees the consequences of what it would be to reject as a deceiver the person who is actually the redeemer of Israel, too. So my aim in these chapters, and I walk through a number of images, I walk through the issue of rejection with the quotation of Isaiah in uh, John 12, or quotation of two passages from Isaiah in John 12, consider how John portrays Jesus as the true vine in uh, John 15. And Jesus is the vine, his his disciples are the branches. And I look at these kind of representative vines in the Old Testament as figures through whom God will establish and sustain his people for the future. So to say that Jesus is the true vine is to say that he is that figure. Um, Psalm 80 is a key text here, but there are several others in Ezekiel that also shore up this reading. Than the alternative, which is to say that Jesus is the vine that replaces Israel, uh, which is the other major alternative interpretively that's on offer for us. But if we're tracking with Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, then Jesus as the the leader that God will ultimately bring about the faithfulness of his people through um, fits with reading the vine as a representative leader, as we see in the Old Testament. We do that, and then we consider several of those righteous sufferers texts. This is where John begins to quote a number of Psalms or allude to a number of Psalms to portray Jesus and his followers. And of course, those who oppose him uh, in terms of those who were on David's, David and those are on David's side in the Psalms 
and also those who rose up against David in the Psalms. And then it ends by considering, this chapter of crisis ends by considering the crucifixion scene and how Jesus goes to his death as the kind of, as a lamb of God um, who has none of his bones broken and this kind of perfect righteous sufferer whose body is preserved, inviolable by God, um, just like the Passover lamb. And this happens tragically at the hands of the people who the psalmist will call his brothers. Um, and so John kind of narrates this tragedy and it's a real division. So that's, that's the use of the word crisis kind of, it's to attempt to capture both what has happened in the narrative to these characters and also to help us see how John is trying to sh- put into relief what their different decisions about Jesus means for their identity before God also. Have you planned any further work in the Gospel of John? I have a few things um, cooking right now that are essentially studies and articles that came up, came up along the way of working on this particular study that didn't really find their way in or weren't a good fit. So uh, I'm working on a piece on what John means when he talks about the glory of men, uh, which is the... It, it is the indictment of those who don't believe in Jesus in John 12 that they 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 pursued the glory of man rather than the glory of God. That's what they loved. So my question there is, what does John mean by the glory of men? And how does it stand in contrast to the glory of God as we see it in the Gospel of John? There's lots that's been written on the glory of God in John, but less that would help us understand what John means by this particular phrase. So a smaller study on that. I'm, I'm trying to, I have another piece that uh, I'm wrapping up on the logic of Jesus's death in the gospel of John and why it is necessary according to John's own logic for Jesus to die. And that's where I develop and present this argument of Jesus as a deceiver of the people of Israel. I do think that John is aware of this ancient Jewish criticism of who Jesus is and the threat that he represents to the Jewish tradition. Uh, and of course, John doesn't want to, doesn't want readers to think that way, but he recognizes that the, the other way of seeing Jesus is as someone who would threaten the coherence and integrity of the, of what God has done and will do with his people. And I think John's aware of that. So I want to explain that. And that's its own kind of study that wouldn't have fit in a dissertation that's kind of strictly focused on something else. So I'm doing that. And then uh, I'm moving out of the Gospel of John a little bit to explore some other studies. Part of my teaching here at Fuller is to become a generalist again in some ways. So uh, I'm relearning Paul. I'm relearning the Gospel of Mark. I'm working on um, some questions of contemporary issues and biblical interpretation too. So got my hands full. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. It was great hearing about your recent monograph, The Gospel of John and the Future of Israel. All the best to you. Great to be with you, Michael. Thank you. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.